Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show on Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I don't come from a rich family. We weren't poor either, but let's just say I wasn't going on any trips to Disneyland when I was a kid. Part of that was because my parents didn't make a lot of money. They worked in social services. That's what my sister does now, actually. They got into this work because they're good people who wanted to help the less fortunate, the vulnerable, the youth. It's a calling, you could say. They don't do it for the money. But imagine a scenario where getting involved in social services could make you money. Imagine if you could actually make a profit by helping people. Social impact bonds, or SIBs for short, are loosely based on this idea. On one side, you have a private investor like Goldman Sachs. They partner with governments and front the cash to fund a pilot social service program. If the program is successful, the government pays the investor its money back, plus a profit. The result is supposed to be win-win. Local or federal governments can try out new ideas for shelter programs, health care, or public education without taking too big of a risk. Investors, for their part, can do some good for the world with their money. At least that's the idea. If social impact bonds could be used to prove both the financial and the social value of a program, then policy, government policy, would shift to put dollars into those types of programs. That was the dream behind social impact bonds. That's Nadine Pequenisa. She first heard about social impact bonds at a TED Talk in 2014. She was so intrigued by the concept, she made a documentary about them. And social impact bonds, by their very nature, are meant to focus on early intervention, so preventative programs. So costs down the road if a child ends up in foster care, for example, or if a homeless person is constantly going to the eMERGE, or if they're using the shelter system. The idea is that you're refocusing dollars on early intervention, therefore saving or avoiding long-term costs for the government. Now, investment terminology confuses the hell out of me. But once I got the basics of what a SIB is and how it works, some questions started to pop up. How do governments and investors agree on what's worth funding? Who decides what makes a program successful? And the people participating in these pilot programs, has anyone told them what's going on? We'll talk about that and more next on Docs. So, uh, Nadine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. I always like to ask about the titles of, of the films uh, that directors make, and uh, yours is called The Invisible Heart. Why did you choose that title? Well, it's a play on Adam Smith's Invisible Hand, and so the idea of impact investing is to bring a third dimension to markets, so looking at the social impact that a capital investment would have. And uh, the idea is that this conscience, the heart of investors, would become um, an invisible player within the market and that money would be directed to do positive things or social goods based on this new market that's developing uh, that involves social impact investing. And uh, the film looks at social impact bonds. Just to explain how those work. 
So a social impact bond is a capital investment that pays for a social program. And if that program has the desired results, it hits certain metrics, then the government repays the investor plus a return on their investment or a profit. Okay, so what's an example of that? And one of the... One of the examples that we followed in the film was uh, housing for chronically homeless. So the idea is to move people from the street into permanent tenancy, and an investor would fund that program. So they hadn't found their investors yet, but typical investors have been corporate foundations, sometimes private uh, philanthropists, so private foundations, family foundations, or it could even be a high net worth individual. So there's a mix of investors. Um, and if that program, so mainstay housing was the one we looked at in the film, if they're able to bring people from the street into permanent tenancy, their program was a three-year program, then the investor would be paid based on the success of them being able to do that. Hmm. This is like quite different from, like say, philanthropy, which is you give money, no strings attached, um, to fund, a, I guess, a social good, right? It's completely different. Yeah. So that would be a grant. Um, this is a capital investment. People compare it to venture capital. Sometimes the term uh, venture philanthropy has been used. Mm. So it is completely different. There is a return attached to the investment. So the government has to pay back the money plus. And if they don't pay back the money, does that ever come up? Like, It has not. It has not come up yet. Uh, there are always exit clauses, not mm. always, but in most of these deals there are exit clauses. So the first one in the U.S. was actually canceled. Um, it was a program for uh, youth uh, who had been in jail in Rikers Island. And the idea was a cognitive behavioral program that was supposed to help them not return to jail, so keep them out of prison. But they found it to be ineffective, and after a year it was canceled. Mm. How well known are social impact bonds? Not very well known at all. Hmm. And that's one of the reasons I made the film is because uh, the first one was in 2010. They're now being piloted in 24 countries. It could be more now, but the last time I looked, it was 24. And uh, Canada has four of them. There's a number coming online, one in Manitoba, another one in Ontario, and potentially in Calgary as well. So they're out there and they're being discussed in investment circles and within government circles and certainly being practiced or experimented with. And there's been very little public discussion about them. Mm. And so we've been doing tours with a film across Canada. We've done seven so far. We're doing our final one in Montreal on November 20th. And the discussions after the film have been very interesting. What have you been hearing at these discussions? Well, we always try to mix the panel. So we have different perspectives and always people who are involved in impact investing or uh, social venture capital in some way. So we have nonprofits are at the table. We've also had government um, involved in the discussions. We've had investors. So we're getting a number of different perspectives. But one thing I've heard across the country from nonprofits is that they have programs that they have been testing and collecting data, sorry, collecting data on and um, improving their efficacy. And despite the research that they're doing and the cases that they're putting forward, they're not getting funding. Hmm. But for some reason, when these cases can be presented and a private investor brought in, then government is more willing to 
fund that program because ultimately with social impact bonds, it's still the government that's funding the program because a SIB is just a financing model. So they're lending in essence or investing the money hmm. and the government is paying the return. Uh, so Invisible Heart falls uh, a couple of examples of social impact bonds, one of them being uh, a public education program in Chicago. Can you just tell us a bit about what that was? Sure. So the preschool program in Chicago was to send 2,600 kids to preschool over three years. So there were three cohorts that went through. The investors were Goldman Sachs, the Pritzker Foundation, and Northern Trust. And they were paid a return based on the kids' academic performance, which were, there were three triggers, payment triggers. One was kindergarten readiness, which was determined by a test. The second one was a grade three reading test. And then there was an annual payment that would be made based on how many children did not require remedial education. And that was actually the biggest payment. So the investment from all three investors totaled $17 million, And the payouts would be made up until the children graduated high school. So if successful, by the end of the bond, the investors could make almost double their initial investment. So they make the money because the kids don't need like extra education or remedial education? Is that kind of how it works? Exactly. Okay. So people have criticized it for basically being a denial, paying investors for a denial of service. Right. And the other criticism which is made in the film is that how can you attribute that one year of preschool to a child's entire academic performance all the way until age 18 when they graduate high school. Well, yeah, sorry. And you also, I mean, you follow one uh, child in particular. Uh, he's a five-year-old boy named Reginald. Let him know that this is where you came when you was born. Come on, don't be shy. Never born. See, I've been here all my life. I've been all my life. Can you just tell us a bit about him? Sure. Reginald uh, grew up in the neighborhood. It's West Garfield is the neighborhood where he lives. Him and his family have been there for three generations, so they know the neighborhood well. And um, all of Latonya's, that's Reggie's mother, all of Latonya's kids have gone to the school where Reginald is. Um, he is the youngest of seven. And the year we started filming with him, his older brother had been killed uh, just outside their home. And so Reginald is dealing with a number of issues that make it difficult for him to be successful at school. Mm. Um, the neighborhood they're in, there's a lot of crime, drugs, um, shootings. In the time that we were there, there were three shootings um, where the school goes on lockdown. And so you can imagine all of these other things that are impacting on Reginald's school performance, not just access to preschool. And so that's one of the things that we tried to show in making the film, how we really have to have a holistic approach to helping people succeed and giving them every opportunity. So if, if a kid like Reginald, say, doesn't uh, meet a, a pass a certain test, I guess he doesn't get funding? Is that how it works, basically? Well, ultimately, that's the question that you have to ask with social impact bonds. I mean, the idea is that only successful programs will be funded because otherwise investors would not invest in them and therefore they wouldn't be funded. 
But the child parent centers or the preschool centers in Chicago have been studied since the 1960s. There's longitudinal studies going over generations that show that early education has a positive impact on a child's academic success. And that's not a new concept. Um, in fact, in Canada, it's, it's very odd for us to consider that education, even preschool, would not be funded by the state. But in Chicago, only half of the kids had access to it. And across the United States, it's not something that's considered a right. Mm. And so it becomes a question, and this is one of the questions that's asked in the film by Caroline Mason, who was an investor and an early developer in social impact bonds in the UK, is we have to be very careful when we're talking about what is a philanthropic gift and what is a democratic right. Mm. In a human ecological framework, we think about a child in a family, in a neighborhood, in a community, in a society, and all those pieces are connected. Insert three hours a day of preschool and voila, all this stuff happens for the next 18 years? No, no way. But I don't think it's prudent, fiscally, to make a year-by-year -year connection to that, to a private investor. Too much else is moving in the system. Well, and I was curious to know whether or not the uh, people who are in this program, so the parents of uh, the children in Chicago who uh, attend these, uh, this preschool, whether or not they know uh, that they're, uh, this is being funded by a social impact bond. Yeah, they have no idea hmm. that they're being funded by a social impact bond. And in a way, the investors and the government don't want to tell them because they want the children and the families to experience the program as any other family would, regardless of where the money is coming from. And in a sense, that creates another moral problem for these social impact bonds, which is clients or people who are reliant on these programs have no say in how they're designed or how they're delivered or how they're financed because they're completely kept out of the discussion. It almost feels like they're part of an experiment. It does feel like a bit of a lab experience. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Mainstay, uh, which is a, this, uh, a program in Toronto here. Um, what, do, what are the pros and cons that a program like Mainstay would have to weigh before, I guess, applying to be part of a social impact bond? Well, what I heard from Mainstay, the executive director, Bridget Witkowski, was the executive director at the time. She's since retired. But from Bridget and from other nonprofits in these panel discussions that we've been having across the country who are considering social impact bonds, there's no other source of money. Hmm. And so if they want get funding for what they're calling an innovative program, although often these programs have been running for years and have stacks of data behind them that show they work. And in fact, even the mainstay program is based on a concept called Housing First, which has been studied, a very extensive study that was publicly funded in Canada called the Chesua study. And similar studies exist around the world, which the principle is that people need housing before they can start to address the other issues that they're dealing with, like mental health or addiction. So when you ask what are they considering, most of them are facing a funding shortage, hmm. and they are looking for sources of funding. Similar to the program in Chicago, you follow a person here named John 
who uh, he's been homeless. He's uh, has uh, mental health and addiction struggles. Can you talk a bit about his story? So John had been on the street for 15 years. He'd been housed for about three months um, when we started filming with him, and we followed him over the course of two years, mm. which is the point at which in the mainstay program they expect to see a client or a tenant step down in their need for day-to-day service from mainstay. So the program is about intensive, 24-hour, you know, seven days a week support when they need it, what they need it, and, or sorry, when they need it and what they need. And so the idea is that after two years, they will start to access some of the other community services that are available that they haven't been able to source before because of the transiency of their lifestyle. So getting into group counseling or psychiatric care or, you know, addiction services, that's the hope and the direction of the program. So the success from the point of view of the social impact bond in the case of uh, uh, Mainstay, what would that look like exactly? Well, that's that was interesting because they hired Deloitte to do a business case. And then they hired another organization called Malatas to do an evaluation study of the program. And they had a difficult time pinpointing what those success metrics would be um, because the fact of the matter is, is that when people are living on the street, they don't have access to a lot of publicly funded programs. And so once they become a tenant at Mainstay, they get a health card, they get a social insurance number, they can apply for disability pension. It actually increases costs to government because people now have access to basic rights that they didn't have before. And so when Deloitte did the study, they found it was a net loss in terms of cost for the government. Well, so they actually lost money. That was the analysis. Wow. Which goes against the idea of social impact bonds. And this brings up another ethical problem. Are we saying that people should be denied service because they don't have an address and therefore we shouldn't help them try to come into stable housing? And now you'll find the people who develop social impact bonds are backing away from the idea that it's about cost savings to government. That's not discussed anymore because they recognize the ethical problems that that creates. But if you take away that component, then what is the justification for government paying returns, you know, in the order of 8 to 12 percent to investors? to front the capital for a program. Why doesn't government just pay it directly? They come in and they want to know, where's the cost saving? Because that's the return on investment. And one great question we got was, um, oh, and so when will we get these people off, um, uh, you know, welfare and into working? And we said, that's not the goal. Homelessness to homes actually gets them out of intense, unimaginable poverty and allows them to claim their entitlements as a citizen, which is a disability pension. I'm trying to like wrap my head around this idea that government would uh, pay for this when it just doesn't seem to be effective, or at least it doesn't seem to like to be like a good re- return on their investment, really. Well, the government can borrow for a lot less than yeah. they would pay on social impact bonds because the average return is between eight and twelve percent, and the government can borrow it too. Hmm. 
So it does beg the question why government would enter into these types of contracts, especially when the vast majority of social impact bonds have been to fund programs that have been tested and proven already. So there's no risk transfer because that was the other claim of social impact bonds, that it would transfer risk from government to private investors so that they could test innovative programs. And then once proven effective, government could take them over and fund them directly. Hmm. But we're not seeing a lot of risk in the social impact bonds that are being tested. Let's just talk a bit about what uh, these investors consider success. And... um, I'm just curious, how do they decide what would make a successful program versus an unsuccessful program? Well, this is one of the interesting things about SIBs because determining those success metrics is really what defines the impact of the program. And while government is supposed to set those metrics, what I found in making the film is that often investors have a say in what metrics are chosen because they're the ones that are expecting the returns and providing the capital. And so, for example, in the Heart and Stroke SIB, which we see in the film, one of the payment triggers is enrollment. So how many people enroll in a program that's designed to help people change behaviors and avoid heart disease? So they intake people who are hypertensive over a certain age. And the trigger payment is not related to whether they actually change their behavior. So change their eating habits or increase exercise, anything that's related to lessening your risk of heart disease. Rather, the payment is based on whether you enroll. Do they consult with, uh, say, the Heart and Stroke Foundation or any experts before they come up with these benchmarks? Oh, the Heart and Stroke Foundation was very involved in developing the benchmarks, as was the Canadian government and um, the investors. Uh, And that's clearly said in the film. There's a, a scene with the CFO of Heart and Stroke and someone who worked with Health Canada at the time. Um, talking about how they came up with the success metrics. And to be fair, I should say that is not the only payment trigger. So the other payment trigger in the majority, 60% of the money is returned to investors based on what is the individual's blood pressure six months after joining the program. So there is that other metric, but six months does not indicate sustainable impact. I mean, what's to say that after six months that that person's blood pressure doesn't increase and they do develop heart disease? So the thing about social impact is changing people's lives and behaviors takes many, many years. And so maybe it's not the right place for private capital and people expecting short-term returns. Well, the thing I'm, I'm thinking about as we're having this conversation is just um, when you introduce a profit motive to like the delivery of a social service, both my parents worked in social services, my sister's a social worker, they're not doing this for the money. So I, I guess, you know, how do you reconcile introducing profit to what is basically, some would argue, a, a human right? That's a very good question. And it's a question that was asked by a lot of people that I interviewed in the film. Um, 
It's problematic in the sense that it creates perverse incentives. Uh, things like parking and creaming. So parking would be diverting people away from a program that you believe um, individuals who would have less chance of success and therefore impact the return to investors. And the other is creaming, which means taking those people who would have a greater likelihood of success. These are the kinds of things that we have to be worried about when we start to tie a financial incentive to somebody's ability to change their life or a program's ability to deliver results. I, I kind of also have to ask if the people who are proponents of SIBs, whether or not they believe that they have their heart in the right place. Like I, I, I imagine they're not doing this just out of greed. Like they must think that this is actually a good way to help people, but also they get a little bit of money in return. And I guess they see this as a model going forward for funding social services. Do I have that right? I don't know the answer to that question. And it's something that I grappled with the entire time I was making the film and still do. Hmm. Uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, who really started this movement and and is still directing it globally or leading it globally, I think his heart's in the right place. I mean, this is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. This We're talking about starting a new market. And they're, they have very big goals. I mean, they're talking about billion-dollar markets and bringing in investors from around the world. Um, you know, Tata Trust, which is, a, I don't know if you know the Tata Group, but it's a big um, conglomerate of corporations in India. Uh, they've got Goldman Sachs is involved in these things. I mean, they're really going big. And so he's really devoted the last eight, ten years of his life working toward developing this market. And I don't think it's for personal enrichment. I don't think you can say that for all investors that are involved. I mean, if you look at corporate foundations, this is an opportunity for them to put money aside, so take it out of their taxable income, and then use it for investment to earn income. Hmm. And you have to wonder as well, some of these companies are also involved in lobbying against increased corporate tax, um, fair labor practices, the kinds of things that a lot of people in the panel discussions that we've had across the country have pointed out are really the source of many of the issues that SIBs are trying to address. You know, fair labor practices wherein there's um, decent pay, vacation, uh, parental leave, equal pay for men and women, culturally diverse workforces and leadership. These are the things that create healthy families and, in turn, healthy communities. And to me, I mean, I would be very interested in seeing a market develop where we could identify companies that have those values and practices within their corporate structure and the way they operate, and money could be invested in those companies that we say, this is what we value, and this is what we want to invest in. Hmm. I think that could have a much bigger impact than social impact bonds, because right now the average social impact bond 
the number of people involved is less than a thousand people being served per bond. So this idea that, you know, we would test these programs and then if they were successful, they would be expanded across countries is not really happening. Hmm. Well, you said it's, it, it's in 24 countries now. I mean, you started in, I guess, since you started working on the film in 2014, um, one of the participants in the film, J.B. Pritzker, uh, who's a philanthropist and venture capitalist, he went on to just win uh, election for governor uh, in Illinois. And I'm just wondering, um, going forward, how, how do you see SIBS uh, playing in the, uh, in the governance, not just of Illinois, but around the world? Well, it's interesting. It's governments really that are pushing social impact bonds more than investors. The nonprofits certainly aren't pushing them. Um, so it's an important question. What is the motivation of governments? And there are no government uh, representatives interviewed in the film, and that's because all of them refuse to be interviewed. And so, Do you know why? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that this movement has been happening behind closed doors in that it's not really been brought out for public discussion. And they're not entirely sure about how it would play in the public eye. And in fact, every time you see an article about social impact bonds, it always talks about investors funding programs, but it never talks about the financial deal. What is the return and who's paying that return? It's it's really presented in such a way as philanthropy when it's not. It's a capital investment. And so I think government's not speaking out largely because they're not sure how it's going to play. When you're talking about social impact bonds, you're talking about people's lives. And they're the actual subject of the experiment. Well, I thank you so much for coming, and uh, I really enjoyed your film, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me. And that's the podcast and the last one of 2018. Woo! The Invisible Heart is touring the country with screenings this fall and winter. And remember, you can screen all our docs for free on TVO.org. We'll be back in January with our last few episodes of the season. Until then, happy holidays. If you want to give us a gift, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or better yet, tell a friend. So Matthew, if someone wanted to send us a wish list for next year, where should they send it to? They can send that wish list to ondocs at tdo.org. Hey, Chantel, if people want updates on the podcast, where should they go? They can follow you on Twitter at ColinLS81. So, Colin, I have a question for you. What's your favorite Christmas movie? Uh, the answer is Die Hard, hands down. I don't care what anyone says. It's an awesome movie, and it's a Christmas movie. End of story. So, Colin, what are your thoughts on uh, holiday music? Uh, it's not really my thing. I used to work at a bookstore for many years and had to hear it played all the time. Uh, That being said, A Charlie Brown Christmas does have a special place in my heart. Thanks to producers Chantel Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinators Jonathan Hallowell and Nikki Ashworth. Our podcast manager is Hannah Sung. Big thanks to all the people at TVO behind the scenes who make the show possible. We'll catch you in the new year at the next screening.